Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Honestly, you don't want to be taking generic legal advice from a YouTube channel or podcast in any event. On with the show. Good morning and welcome to another Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today I wanted to highlight an article that I had read yesterday and candidly been asked to participate in and to give some quotes from Variety about 2019 and what we can expect from the video game landscape from a legal perspective and from other perspectives, including business uh, and the games themselves. And I wanted to use that also as a jumping off point to discuss what is some very big news that came out today, and that's that GameStop is no longer seeking to sell its company. Uh, which if you followed it over the past uh, 18 months or so, has been a continuing source of discussion about GameStop's business model, about what they're going to do about it, about the leases that they hold and the retail locations that they have, and a lot of people diving deep into the financials of that company. So I want to highlight that article, and I want to kind of go off from there and talk about GameStop, talk a little bit about mergers and acquisitions, uh, which if you don't know me or you haven't followed my channel before, is part of my day job. I'm a lawyer that focuses on corporate business, and I do a lot of uh, mergers and acquisitions and sales uh, and financing. And so when we start talking about the GameStop issue today, we're going to see that one of the issues that they really faced was financing, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what that really means. So without further ado, let's dive into this uh, Variety 2019 article, which again, I was asked to participate in, and I think the author here, Michael Futter, did a great job, uh, and I've worked with him in the past Uh, And this really goes to, if you haven't been following it, and if you're following this channel and if you're watching this video, I suspect you're probably pretty interested in it. If you haven't been following Variety, they've opened up a gaming portal. They they have a Variety Gaming Twitter feed to follow, and they have Variety Gaming as a top-line item that they cover now. And they've really been doing a good job of expanding this coverage over the past year. And I highly recommend adding it to the bookmarks that you keep and the articles that you read if you're at all interested in the stuff that I talk about on a regular basis uh, on virtual legality. Uh, And so uh, this article is called Video Games 2019 Lawsuits, Streaming, Child Safety, and Dying Retail. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because I do think it makes sense to click on it. I'm going to put the link in the description like I do for these videos, but I'm going to talk at length about the parts that I've contributed to in particular. So this article starts, each December, critics and analysts put on their glasses and give the preceding year a 2020 hindsight wrap-up. It's important also to take a moment before getting swallowed whole by January's news blitz to look forward at what we might expect as 2019 starts to unfold. So put the Destiny, Divorce, Unity's improbable squabble, and EA shifting gears on Star Wars aside for a few minutes. It's time to look ahead at what the next 12 months might bring. The first heading is Intellectual Property Dance-Off, which is a section I absolutely contributed to. And if you haven't followed my videos before, you'll see there are a couple instances here that I have discussed prior to now uh, that you can look at those videos for a more in-depth discussion. And if I remember to, I will put the cards up in this YouTube video uh, so that you can link directly to those videos. Uh, Intellectual Property Dance-Off. Intellectual property is already an exceedingly tricky topic, but two different ongoing stories are likely to keep the conversation going. 
More plaintiffs are trying to take a bite out of Epic's Fortnite war chest with lawsuits alleging copyright infringement. Now other publishers are running scared as Microsoft has pulled two dances from Forza Horizon 4. And as I said before, I've done a video on this. I've talked about the nature of intellectual property law uh, and copyrights in general. And so uh, a different attorney starts talking in this article and has a slightly different take that I have had uh, before, uh, which I do find interesting. The law on copyright and dances is pretty clear with tons of case law and legislation backing up what many accept as legal truth, says attorney Ryan Morrison, founding partner of Morrison Rothman. Copyright protects only long form dances, ballets, for example. Uh, and not a short dance move such as the one we see in Fortnite. With that said, there are very large sums of money at play here with very powerful or well-known people behind the complaints. And like I've said before, where there's money, there will be lawsuits because it only costs so much to actually initiate a lawsuit and essentially you start playing a poker game with what you could possibly win. So we call it pot odds when we're thinking about gambling. But in essence, if you can win $50, it doesn't make sense to sue. If you can win $50 million, then the, the decision-making starts to change a little bit. So whenever there are these huge amounts of money, and Fortnite's making, I think, more than $300 million a month, then if you've got even a tangential claim, something that you can get into the discussion with the folks at Epic or, or otherwise, if it's not Fortnite, it's something else like Forza, then you have that discussion because the lawyers are interested in representing you because there's a lot of money at play and you might have a claim. And intellectual property is opaque enough that it's difficult to say you definitely don't have a claim. And so you're seeing these kinds of claims brought forth. Uh, I believe 2019, this is going back to the article, will see very intense policy arguments about intellectual property and specifically copyright as the internet and gaming industry continues to exploit what would normally be considered derivative or infringing works. Uh, now, if you follow me on Twitter, if you've heard me before, I generally don't love the word exploit here. It's perfectly valid use of the word in terms of the, defi the definition, but it carries a negative connotation, I think, that kind of sets uh, a particular playing field and, and a certain thought process that says Epic is exploiting these people and using something in an untowards way. And I certainly think if you look at my video, and if you even look at this statement that's being made right now, in the environment that exists before these lawsuits, there's really no question that Epic had the right to kind of take very small form dance moves and use them in their game the way they have. And so it's not a negative exploitation as much as it's a kind of traditional use of the word exploit in terms of intellectual property. Um, but this could change, which is what this uh, statement goes on to say. Judges are able to interpret what a law means and are able to overturn old decisions. Additionally, legislatures can change the entire landscape with a new law. I believe one of the two is very likely as this conversation maintains its home at the front of the entertainment industry, um, which is absolutely the correct way to frame this. Hey, you don't know what a judge is going to say. Intellectual property is opaque. Even the stuff that we talked about on my previous videos about what the Copyright Office's current position is on these things isn't specifically the law. It's the way an agency interprets the law. And another judge or a legislature could come in and say, no, it should be this uh, and make it all different, uh, essentially overnight. And so it is something to keep your eye on because to the extent that there is kind of media exposure of this issue with Fortnite and intellectual property, there is going to be a discussion about what is fair and what is unfair. And even if the current geography of the law is hey, two milli or uh, the, the Carlton shouldn't get protection under what existed before now, should they? And that conversation about what's fair is essentially that second level discussion. Hey, maybe they're right in the law right now, but should they be? And if they shouldn't, if we all decide that this is unfair or if the legislature decides that this isn't what we want, 
then maybe we change the rules and we change the law and, and things change from there. Uh, whether or not that has an ex post facto effect on things like Fortnite uh, is another question, and it certainly depends on how that was uh, conveyed, whether it was a judge's decision, whether it was a legislature acting. Uh, and, and so I tend to disagree. I tend to think that you won't see this kind of sea change uh, in intellectual property law. It will certainly be part of the discussion, but I anticipate that Epic is ultimately going to wind up winning these things and saying that you're allowed to use, you know, 10 second clips of dances and that's going to be deemed okay. Uh, but I can certainly be wrong on that. And it's essentially just kind of trying to read tea leaves about what's likely to happen. And it's why you see these lawsuits proceeding is because the same lawyers like me and, and like Mr. Rothman or, or like Mr. Morrison, I apologize, uh, sit down with clients and say, hey, um, you know, you maybe don't have the strongest argument right this second, but we can petition for a different interpretation of the law. You, your argument isn't specious. It doesn't have no viability. And so we can go forward and say, hey, maybe these guys should be protected. Maybe it would be unfair to not protect them. Going back to the article, the confounding factor for many lawsuits that involve video games and other technology is the expertise of the presiding judge. Combine that with debate over whether the one or two moves featured in each Fortnite dance constitute choreography that is subject to copyright protection. Like any specialty field, software and video games, and the litigation related thereto, present their own kinds of problems, says attorney Richard Hogue of Hogue Law, who, are you, who you are listening to right now. Special care and attention must be paid to defining terms and explaining concepts which can have varied or even contradictory meanings depending on the parties discussing them. This is especially true when dealing with a third party like a judge or arbiter with no knowledge of the industry who, and who won't know, without help, the difference between a battle pass and a battle front. Hogue points to the recent legal scuffle between Take-Two and the Pinkerton Consulting and Investigating Agency as example, which you can see on another video in the Virtual Legality series prior to now. They spend more than a few recitals, this being Rockstar, describing what their game is and how it works, including a long-form description of the concept of a cutscene, Hogue says. Knowing your audience is important especially in court. So the point that uh, Mr. Futterer is making in this po uh, portion of the article is all these claims might be entirely fair and the decision-making process behind the judge deciding whether the intellectual property should be allowed in a game like Fortnite or Forza or wherever is uh, essentially related to whether or not the judge can understand what he or she is being told about how the video game itself functions. Essentially, whether or not they can understand what a battle pass is, how that money goes in, how the uh, tier 74 dance uh, is going to be received by people, whether they paid for that directly. These are all going to be things that they have to understand before they can uh, judge whether an infringement has occurred, whether a der derivative work exists, etc., etc. And so it becomes very important with technological cases to get that discussion right, to have both sides essentially talking about things on the basis that essentially you've never heard about video games before. You don't have any idea how Fortnite works, how Red Dead Redemption 2 works, how Forza Horizon works, whatever it is that you're discussing in a court case. And that is a barrier. Uh, sometimes you see court decisions that come out, especially in the technology-related fields, and this isn't limited to video games. This is related to all sorts of things, including patents and, and life sciences and pharmaceuticals and all sorts of things that have a high uh, technology component where... Uh, somebody in the industry or in the field can look at a judgment and say, oh, I don't, I don't think they fully understood what was happening here. Uh, and that happens all the time. Judges are human beings, just like lawyers are, just like video game makers are, uh, just like litigants are. And so uh, we have this process, we have this litigation forum set up uh, to try to uh, isolate the correct answers, but that's not always easy. And it certainly is even more difficult in technology-related fields. 
uh, going on in the article, and uh, this is uh, another thing that you have seen me discuss at length in these videos, including a three-part video series uh, related to the Star Control Origins saga. Uh, this year could put us on a collision court, uh, course with DMCA abuse. The Digital Millennium Copyright Act provides a mechanism for content owners to request infringing material be removed from distribution channels. It's faster than a lawsuit. We most often hear about this with regard to YouTube and creators improperly using copyrighted music or video footage. An ongoing fight over the star control intellectual property currently being waged by series creator Paul Reich III and Fred Ford against strategy game publisher Stardock has escalated the DMCA takedown to a new level. Reich and Ford have been at odds with Stardock for more than a year over an intellectual property ownership dispute. Stardock acquired rights to the Star Control series in 2013, but Reich and Ford contest the scope of those rights. Stardock released a new game in the franchise, Star Control Origins, in September 2018. Reich and Ford have been struggling to fight the case in court, going so far as to start a GoFundMe campaign to raise $2 million for legal fees. Only $42,238 has been raised since the campaign went live in June 2018. Most recently, Reich and Ford filed a DMCA takedown request with Steam and GOG, good old games, as a fast-track solution. On January 2nd, Star Control Origins was removed from sale on those platforms, though Stardock continued to sell the game on its own website. As for January 17th, sales on those platforms have resumed. The DMCA is, is an almost ridiculously overpowered law in favor of claimants and likely should be nerfed, Hogue explains. Reach and Ford are looking to revive a look and feel standard for modern game infringement that, especially combined with the DMCA, could have a chilling effect on the industry, and in particular developers without the funds to fight a, protected, uh, a protracted legal battle. The Star Control case's twists and turns make it interesting to watch, but it's the power of the DMCA takedown and its use to impact a game's viability on digital distribution platforms that could have far-reaching impact. Expect that Stardock will be adding this action to its list of legal complaints. So, uh, again, if you've watched my videos, I'm not sure that there's a ton new there uh, to digest, except for the fact that Star Control Origins is now back on GOG as of either uh, yesterday or the day before. And so it's back on both digital distribution platforms, which, if you followed my videos and if you know the DMCA and you've looked at those provisions, means essentially that Steam and GOG are willing to take on the additional liability of selling these things, uh, selling Star Control Origins on the premise that they're not going to have to face uh, infringement claims, that ultimately Stardock is likely to win that fight. Uh, and you can see my analysis uh, more detail on that notion in uh, Virtual Legality 11-3, uh, which is essentially the finale of the Star Control saga as it stands right now. Uh, but again, I do think for these intellectual property issues, the Fortnite issue, the Star Control issue, and more precisely, above and beyond the Star Control issue, where reasonable minds can differ about who's infringing and who's not, the notion of a DMCA takedown being uh, pro-offered to the Steams and the Gogs of the world to have something removed when you haven't yet proved a, an, an infringement or you are in the process of a court case that's going to decide whether something's infringing or not, creates these problems for developers, creates these problems for people that want to put these things out there. And it is something that needs to be looked at. And I do think it's going to be highlighted uh, this year as the, the action that, that Reach and Ford took was one that we hadn't really seen used very often uh, in video games, which is taking down a live, relatively full-priced video game on, a, uh, on an interesting infringement claim. Uh, and, and certainly the fact that Steam and GOG have looked at the issue and put the game back on uh, might suggest that they aren't in the they aren't interested in having that proceed down further on the line as well. Uh, but we shall see. And I, I certainly think it is something to highlight for 2019. Um, going forward in the article, there's some really interesting insights about cloud streaming, about uh, generalized streaming on video games and Twitch and Mixer and other services and how video games are going to be 
developed and created to use the streaming services and, and that those games that are likely to succeed are going to use them in unique and interesting ways uh, and keeping kids safe from cyberbullying and uh, the related things, which I think the article posits is going to be the new loot boxes for 2019. Um, but I wanted to talk about the, the end kind of discussion here, which is digital's siege on retail continues. This year is already shaping up to be another challenging one for retail. Last year saw the collapse of Toys R Us after a leveraged buyout left the company saddled with more debt than it could service. The Toys R Us bankruptcy didn't have a huge impact on the video game market where it had lost ground to big box retailers like Target, e-commerce giant Amazon, and specialty retailer GameStop. The latter appears to be headed in the same direction as Toys R Us as digital becomes a bigger share of video game revenue quarter over quarter. Especially as games shift to service-based models, packaged goods become less relevant. GameStop has been looking for a buyer, and there are reportedly two major suitors in play. Both are private equity firms that would use GameStop assets as collateral for the debt used to make the purchase. So we're going to stop right there. There's a number of additional insights that are really great here about GameStop, about what they're looking at, about the current financial environment and video game environment for retail physical sales in general. I want to leave those to your reading on the, the article in general. They deserve the clicks. Please do click. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating article with a number of other insights that I haven't gotten to on this. But I want to talk specifically about GameStop, about private equity, and about mergers and acquisitions. So we see here confirmed GameStop in buyout talks. And again, this is from June of last year, 2018. GameStop is in talks with private firms about a potential buyout the retailer confirmed in a news release. In spite of being the largest brick-and-mortar games retailer in the U.S., GameStop has struggled to remain relevant in the wake of digital game sales and popular online retailers such as Amazon, offering more competitive pricing and direct shipment to consumers. There can be no assurance any agreement will result from these discussions, the news release stated. GameStop does not intend to make any additional comments regarding these discussions unless and until it is appropriate to do so. While it is not yet certain if GameStop will follow through with the sale, the company's stocks rose 11% on Monday after rumors of a buyout started. So as I said at the beginning of this video, let's talk a little bit about mergers and acquisitions. And I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here because it's not actually that pertinent to what has happened uh, today as much as it's good background information for understanding what's going on. So GameStop is a public company. That means that the shares in itself are available on a public market and that they have to make public filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States and with certain other uh, things like the markets that they sell their shares on so that they are in comport with giving proper information to everybody. But it also means that there are a ton and ton of shareholders in GameStop. And so when you talk about a sale, when you talk about a merger or an acquisition, which are used together because uh, the form of a transaction doesn't matter as much as what's actually happening. So you can acquire a company by merging into it or or by creating a subsidiary that you own that then merges into it. And that's technically a merger on the target side, uh, but it's still an acquisition in all functional basis. Uh, and so what you've got here is you've got GameStop's board of directors, which is the highest group of people that are dis deciding on the direction that GameStop can go, saying, hmm, we've looked at our financials, we've looked at our CEO setup, we've looked at our executives, uh, we've looked at everything else that relates to how we operate this company, and we think it might be a time to uh, look to sell, that maybe we don't have great direction right now, maybe we don't know what's best for the company, or, or maybe we just feel like a sale here is going to maximize shareholder value and it's going to be the best thing for the company moving forward, which is how they described it in the press release back last year. And there were certainly rumors 
even before this release was made in June of last year, that they were looking. Uh, and one of the reasons you can see for this is not only that the GameStop reported a net loss of $105.9 million for the 2017 fiscal year. You see that highlight, highlighted. You see the leadership of GameStop has also been in flux over the past year after J. Paul Raines resigned in November 2017 for health reasons before his death in March. The next appointed CEO, Michael Mahler, resigned after only three months. Current interim CEO and Microsoft exec Shane Kim took over on June 1st. Uh, and so there is tumult in the executive suite. There is general loss of funds. There's a, there's a notion that GameStop, in its current form, as it has been operating for as long as it has, is circling the drain in a specific way, and they need to do something different. Uh, and so one of the things they did to look at that was, hey, maybe we should sell. Maybe we should give to somebody else who has other notions of how to do this and, and, and is going to look at new management, look at new ideas. And when we talk about private firms, when we talk about private equity, as was mentioned in the 2019 article that we just finished looking over, private equity is essentially uh, groups of, uh, of funders, of financiers that get piles of money together and they go and they buy these companies and they look to uh, change management, change their operations. They think that the assets that are currently existing in the company are not being used to their highest, most productive, most profitable end. They collect this money together and they, and they buy companies. Uh, the issue is we're going to see for private equity rather than a public company that could maybe just give a lot of shares of its own that has a high value like we saw in, in the Disney and Fox deal. Uh, the, the issue here from a private equity standpoint is they don't have those public shares. Uh, yes, they can fund a certain amount of their acquisition through the issuance of their own shares in what we call a roll-up or an equity participation at the private equity side, but they mostly have to come up with a lot of cash because all those many, many shareholders we just talked about in a public company generally have to have their shares bought and at at least a small premium to what they're currently selling for in the market or else there's not necessarily uh, a reason to sell. And the board of directors has the fiduciary duty to maximize the shareholder value in a deal of these types. And there's a thousand and one things that go into a discussion like this. But one of the things is you need a whole lot of money to buy a public company. And GameStop right now has a market capitalization, I believe, of a little bit more than a billion dollars. So just taking that on kind of a back of the envelope, uh, hypothetical number, you need to collect a billion dollars. And private equity is generally not going to have a billion dollars to give, although they sometimes do. Uh, so they're going to leverage their sale. They're going to find someone to lend them the money that will then be secured by the assets that they're buying. That essentially secured, meaning the same thing as when you mortgage your house to get the money to buy it. That if something goes wrong on the repayment, the asset that you have can be essentially transferred in possession to the lender, to the bank, and then they will be able to sell or otherwise use that asset to get their money back in some fashion. So the way these things work private equity comes in, they have a certain amount of cash, they have a certain amount of shares that they're going to contribute to the purchase price, but then they have financial lenders. They have institutional lenders that they work with that are in the business of doing these kinds of rescues or leveraged buyout situations, and they give usually the bulk of the money. Uh, and then that debt sits on the company's books, which is a huge amount of debt that they have to service. They have to pay the interest on, they have to get rid of, uh, but it's secured by the assets of the company. Uh, and one of the things we're going to see here is we're going to go through these articles and as the year goes on, you see here, this is a September 7th, 2018 article, GameStop sales slide as it continues looking for buyers. Uh, video game retailer GameStop released its financial results for the second fiscal quarter of 2018 on Thursday, posting a net loss of $24.9 million. Total global sales decreased 2.4% to $1.65 although this was consistent with the company's expectations, it said. 
Our second quarter results were in line with our expectations and highlighted by solid growth in new hardware, accessories, and collectibles, said GameStop Chief Operating Officer and Chief Financial Officer Rob Lloyd. As we enter the back half of the year, we are focused on preparing our organization, particularly our stores and associates, to deliver the best customer experience in the video game industry to support an exciting slate of titles launching in the fall. So they move on to public relations. They move on to saying everything's fine here. The company is going to do great. But we've got another loss uh, in uh, the second fiscal quarter. Uh, then we get to the end of the year and we see not that the holiday season was terrible for GameStop, but that holiday sales dropped for GameStop in 2018 compared to 2017. So video game retailer GameStop saw a 5% drop in global holiday sales compared to the same nine-week holiday period in 2017. The company reported today total global sales for the period were $2.63 billion. Uh, and I, I believe you get a, a comment here, or there was a contemporaneous comment from GameStop essentially talking in their financials about the nature of the generations in video games and how a lot of growth in the video game sector is driven by generational transitions and, and buying those consoles and things. And it has been a while since that has happened to any great extent And GameStop talking about uh, the potential for the next generation to have an increase in uh, their value. But the big news of today, and this wasn't known at the time of that 2019 article that we were just talking about, is that GameStop just gave up on trying to sell the company. This is at uh, uh, roughly 8.15 in the morning Eastern, uh, a couple of hours before I was making this video. And the fact that they did this uh, is really a signal uh, that there is a problem with GameStop, and it's a problem that not even private equity and institutional lenders are willing to necessarily take on. Uh, which is one of the reasons we're going to see uh, a lot of impact on the, the GameStop uh, stock price uh, and, and the uh, recommendations for whether or not to invest in GameStop have been happening as well. Uh, but we see the reason that they give. GameStop Tuesday announced it was no longer trying to sell the company due to a lack of available financing on terms that would be commercially acceptable to a prospective acquirer. So again, let's back up and talk about the legalities of what a merger and acquisition looks like. So your GameStop, your board of directors, you start negotiating what's called a term sheet uh, with a potential acquirer. So when we talk about a major merger, major acquisition, we're talking about thousands of pages of legal documentation when all is said and done. That the actual final version of what needs to happen to transfer everything, the promises that need to be made about the company, about the executives, about the way the assets work and what kind of liens or debt and exposure you have, those are hundreds of pages, thousands of legal hours to get negotiated and, and to get done. So what the parties agree to before all that is a shorter document. It's called a term sheet, and it agrees to essentially the baseline economic terms. Here's the sales price that we're going to accept for the shares. Here's the debt you're going to take on. Here's how you're going to pay for it. If I say that it's going to cost you $1.2 billion to buy this company, where is that going to come from? And one of the things that is going to be put in there, if you're dealing with close corporations, you're dealing with private equity, you're dealing with venture capital, something along those lines, uh, you're going to have a condition that says, essentially, uh, we agree to this or we're going to agree to this in principle, uh, contingent upon us securing the financing we need to actually buy this. Hey, you know, we don't have a billion dollars in our bank account right now. Uh, but we can get it. We know guys, we work with lenders all the time. They give us money on reasonable rates and they're going to participate with us. And we, we have a, this thing down pat. Generally, private equity has done this all before. They're not starting their private equity careers buying a huge public corporation. So they've been down this road and they have a contingency in their term sheet or in their negotiations with GameStop that says, hey, we got to go make sure we can secure this financing. 
And what this suggests to me is that GameStop went pretty far down the line with one or even two of their potential suitors, their buyers. Uh, and they got to the point where they said, okay, we're probably pretty much okay on the deal terms, uh, but you have to go and secure your financing. And so you have to go take these deal terms to your institutional lender, to your to your financing source, and they have to agree to it and say, yes, we're going to pony up the $600 million, the $700 million, whatever portion of the purchase price you need to finance and put on the books uh, of GameStop. And what happened in this process is uh, the acquirers got to a place where they were pretty happy with the deal. They thought they could make it work. They went out to the lenders who are essentially one notch more risk averse than the investors. They, the, uh, the private equity folks don't love risk, but they're willing to take it on. And then the lenders are one notch more uh, averse to taking on that risk. And so they looked at it and they said, uh, either, no, I'm, we're never going to do this. We don't like GameStop as a potential partner. And we think that this is going to go poorly, or you need to change these things in your deal terms and GameStop or the acquirer weren't willing to make those changes. And the thing fell apart. So what this does suggest is that this got pretty far down the field, not necessarily to the point of signing a term sheet, which probably would have been disclosed or, or a, a public uh, a statement would have been made, not necessarily, but, but usually, uh, or, uh, this, uh, was just before that, was just before signing it, and, and most of the economics of the the buyout were probably agreed to. That's when you go and you talk to the institutional lenders and you say, this is what we've agreed to, and will you finance it? And they said no. So this does mean a couple things. This means, one, that the lenders don't think that GameStop's necessarily a good investment. And you see in this article, uh, they talked to uh, Michael Pachter, uh, a new console without a disk drive, unlikely but possible, could kill their business, Pactor explained, and all this talk of Amazon, Apple, and Google streaming video games causes some to question whether there will be consoles at all. Pactor added that he doesn't believe those future game streaming services are intended to replace game consoles, but rather to supplement them, but try to explain that to a lender, which again to kind of dovetails back to what we were talking about in the litigation context, which is that these people, judges, arbiters, lenders, are uh, people of the world. They're, they're dealing with a lot of different problems. They're dealing with a lot of different industries. They're dealing with a lot of different folks. And so they aren't experts at any particular industry, usually. Uh, and so when you talk about institutional lending, you say, hey, here's how GameStop works. Here's how we think we can make our money. And my guess is they were going to use some of the leases that were favorable, use some of the locations, change over the GameStop business model to some extent that they thought would add to the, the profitability of GameStop, let them pay down the debt and, and make money overall. Uh, and the lenders said, no, we, we, we've got real concerns about this. We're looking at things that we can't necessarily see about the nature of their assets, about the nature of their current management positions. And we are not happy with uh, the possibility of getting our money back. Uh, and, and certainly I think one thing uh, that informed that was one of the big stories of the past couple years and that's the Toys R Us bankruptcy. And you saw it referenced uh, a little bit in the 2019 article. But to kind of put this in context, what you had with Toys R Us was you had private equity firms, in this case, KKR, Bain Capital, and Vornado Realty Trust, uh, put in $1.3 billion of their own money. But that was only a portion of the $6.6 billion buyout. And you see it described here as a $6.6 billion leveraged buyout, which means debt was used which means that $5.3 of that purchase price was paid using debt. And so when Toys R Us went into bankruptcy, a lot of the people here essentially just lost their money or got paid pennies on the dollar, and they couldn't get it back. And I think that that, which is essentially a specialty retail store 
that was essentially sold a bill of goods and, and the, the lenders were sold a bill of goods on what the investment would mean and how likely they were get to get their money back. I think that still plays into the minds of institutional lending. So GameStop looks like a little mini Toys R Us in terms of how it operates and what it's running into and what problems it's facing as people go into digital and Amazon. And because of that kind of connection, whether or not it necessarily makes sense, people are still people that you've got out there these folks that were recently burned or saw their colleagues burned or, or saw other people in their field burned and say, hey, you know, uh, we think this is, looks like a Toys R Us scenario. We don't want to lose all that money. And so we're not going to invest in you. Uh, and I think that's part and parcel to what happened today uh, is that GameStop found that the institutional lending sources that even their acquirers thought would be available. I really do think that, that the acquirers thought that the financing sources would be there aren't. Uh, and GameStop then had to uh, essentially readjust. And, and you see here at the bottom of the article about them not selling today, the board continues to evaluate the optimal use of these proceeds from a $700 million sale of, of their spring mobile business, which could include reducing the company's outstanding debt, paying down their current debt servicing, uh, funding share repurchases, buying out uh, folks, buying out potentially uh, angry folks, uh, and, and enhancing the stock price somewhat artificially by essentially limiting the n amount of shares uh, that are outstanding. Reinvesting in core video game and collectibles businesses to drive growth. Investing that money back in to, to, to essentially stay the course and to keep going forward. Uh, or a combination of these options. Furthermore, the board is continuing its search process to appoint a highly qualified permanent CEO, which is essentially the subtext of this whole story, which is they don't have a CEO right now. They have an interim CEO that's kind of handling things, but they don't actually have someone steering the ship. Uh, and that CEO job is important. It, it's the one that essentially points the ship in a direction and has the entire operation go in that direction. And right now, regardless of whether the interim CEO is doing a good job or, or picking good directions, there is the nature of being an interim that's just different than being a permanent CEO. So even those choices that they are making may or, not be, may or may not be the choices that the company is electing to make uh, down the line. And so you've got a company in absolute tumult, in uh, not knowing where it's going, what's going to happen. And you've got a company with a significant amount of debt uh, and cash flow issues and decreasing profitability. And it is the kind of company, when these deals fall through, that it wouldn't be a surprise to necessarily see go through a formal reorganization process, whether in bankruptcy or otherwise. Uh, and so I do think it's one to absolutely watch out for. This is not, this is not a good sign for GameStop. Uh, and it's, and it's, that's exactly what you wind up seeing in uh, the stock price. So you have here an article from Barron's GameStop stock dives because the company isn't for sale. For GameStop, it's back to square one. That's how it feels Tuesday morning with the video game retailer shares down more than 25% in early trading to below $12 following its announcement that it doesn't plan to sell itself. We talked about this dynamic a little bit before, but when they announced that they were looking to sell, the stock price went up by 11%, I believe was the number, and now it's gone down by 25%. And again, that's because when you think it's going to sell, you're going to get a premium on what that price is in the market. And so people say, hey, we think it's likely that it's going to sell. We're going to buy it. That price is going to go up. Oh, we think it's not as likely to sell. We're going to sell the stock. That price is going to go down. And that's what happened today. And this article basically goes over what we've talked about already. But the nature of the thing is that the company isn't in a saleable position for any reason. Uh, and regardless of whether or not that's institutional lenders, lack of acquirers, any other reason, there's a real problem with GameStop. Uh, and as they say here at the bottom of the ar article, whoever steps into the head gamers chair at the company, the CEO, 
is going to have a heck of a job ahead. So that's my video on the state of 2019. And again, I was very happy to be asked to participate in that Variety article. And I do recommend checking it out by clicking on the links in the descriptions to this video, but also using it as a jumping off point for really discussing GameStop. And I think for those of you like me who have been involved in and interested in the video game industry uh, throughout our lifetimes, uh, we're looking at a potential for a sea change in really how games are sold, uh, where you have to go to buy them, and, and what that looks like. I don't think that GameStop is going to exist in any kind of format that we recognize uh, in the next couple years. And whether or not that means that they've gone through bankruptcy or they've sold out to someone else or even to their creditors, or whether they have themselves invested money in really changing over their formatting either to a pure collectibles type store that is kind of supportive of the video game industry, but maybe not directly related, or something else uh, that nobody has yet thought of. It does mean that things are changing. Uh, and the fact that they weren't bought out uh, is it really doesn't change the fact that things were always going to change. And I find that interesting. And to some extent, the nostalgic part of me uh, finds that a little bit sad. Before I was a lawyer, I was an associate game seller at Electronics Boutique. Uh, which was then bought by GameStop. Uh, and those are years of my life that uh, I will always remember. Uh, and, and they were good years. And so if that sales process doesn't continue in any form, uh, that's that's going to be a, a little bit of a loss uh, for what was my personal past uh, and history. And so I find that interesting and I find that uh, nostalgically a little sad. Uh, but I do think if you're interested in these kinds of topics, you should absolutely check out Variety Gaming. They do a great job of reporting on these things. And there are obviously a lot of sites uh, that do as well. One of my personal favorites is, is Game Daily Biz, which is a smaller site that is getting uh, bigger uh, and talking about these things on a regular basis. So do check those out. Uh, and that's what I've got to say today. If you like this video, please do like it. Please subscribe it. Please hit the bell. Uh, and uh, otherwise, follow me on Twitter. And please do comment and give me feedback on this video, your thoughts on GameStop, your memories of either shopping at or working at a GameStop or Electronics Boutique or Funko Land or anywhere else, uh, and your thoughts on the nature of this upcoming change to what's going to be video game retail in the future. I'm not sure everything goes digital, uh, but I think that's going to be uh, ever more prevalent in the video game industry, especially with things like Game Pass uh, and the kind of Netflix for games service model, which seems to be coming from a number of different corners. Uh, but I, I do think you should keep your eye on GameStop because I suspect there will be more announcements and more movement there uh, this year. So again, leave that feedback, leave those comments. Have a great Tuesday and thank you so very much for watching.